Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You will see in the talk this afternoon that I will give that the concept of the order of love, as John Paul uses it, is very closely connected with Gaudium in Spes 24.3. In my Theology of the Body classes, I tell my students, if you want to get an A in this course, it's a very simple recipe. Any question I might ask you at the final exam, it's an oral exam, you can give the same answer. Gaudium it's best 24-3. <laughs> and as long as you explain how it bears on the question. But John Paul makes a remarkable claim about this short text of the Second Vatican Council that it summarizes the whole truth about man and woman. Hey, good to see you. <laughs> mm-hmm. the distinguished welker. I don't know if you're familiar with that text. Uh, if you've had people uh, drill it into you, all of my students have to memorize it. Um, but it says, indeed, the Lord Jesus, when he prays to the Father that all may be one as we are one, it's part of his prayer to the Father in John 17, thus opening vistas closed to human reason, so this is a mystery of faith, he tells us about his relation to the Father we wouldn't know from looking at anything else what that relationship is like. He tells us, we take his word, so he opens vistas close to human reason. Okay. Indeed, the Lord Jesus, when he prays to the Father that all may be one as we are one, thus opening vistas close to human reason, indicates, points out, a certain likeness between the union of the divine persons and the union of God's sons in truth and love. That's the first sentence. And there's a second sentence. This likeness shows that, so the likeness between these two unions of persons shows that Man, who is the only creature on earth God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. And you have in that second sentence an argument, the likeness shows And the main thing that it shows is placed in the main clause. 
And the second thing it shows is placed in a relative class. So the main class is this likeness shows that man can cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. In the relative clause, right before that, it says, man, who is the only creature on earth God willed for itself. And those two are complementary ways of filling out the notion of love. If there's really only one commandment that we are to follow, love of God and love of neighbor, if all the other commandments are implicit in that. So if Augustine is right in saying, love and then do what you want. Dilige et quod vis fac. Then, be very interesting to spell out in more detail what it means to love. And that's what these two points in Gaudiumit's Best 24.3 do. The one point is God, or man is the only creature on earth God willed for itself. Why not trees or, or dogs? If you say to a tree, have a good day, um, you can well wish that a tree have a good day despite, I don't know, a volcanic explosion or whatever. <laughs> um, but the tree couldn't care less from a certain point of view that is its own good and bad bypasses it. It doesn't possess it. It can be a healthy tree, all right, and a gardener might be interested in having the tree healthy, but in a certain way the tree has no benefit from it because it doesn't, as it were, appreciate its own health. With animals it's already quite different. Um, when you feed a dog and a dog is pleasantly surprised by how good the stuff tastes. There is a kind of enjoyment, but what's distinctive of us is that we can grasp our life as a whole and therefore seek happiness, by which the ancients meant not a certain affective state, that's what we tend to mean by happiness, a happy feeling, but they meant by happiness or blessedness a life as a whole about which you can say it's good. That's the life I want to live. That's the life I want to embrace. All of us as human beings are on a journey 
to that, whether we know it or not, that's what we want. We don't want a life of misery. We want a life about which we can say, that's a good life. That's a life about which I can say good without having to take anything back. Since we have that capacity as persons, we are the only beings here on earth whom one can wish well for their own sake. In the ethics, Nicomachean ethics, Aristotle says it would be strange to wish a bottle of wine well. I wish you well. Um, one can wish for it to keep, so one can have it as one's own, drink it. But he says, by contrast, for friends, we say, we will for them what is good for their own sake. In a certain way, that's the most elementary aspect of love, that one wishes persons well, not at the exclusion of oneself, one wishes oneself well, one wills the good for oneself, but in relation to other persons. So that's the first. You could say that's very much a beginning. Every human being has that dignity from the get-go in as much as they are a person. And there's the other, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. That's not about the beginning. It doesn't come automatically with the nature. It's an achievement that comes at the end, finding oneself through a sincere gift of self. And the council adds, Luke 17.33, which says, whoever seeks to make his life secure, the, the, the Greek word there is peripoieo, which means to do around. So the one who seeks to do around his life, like a fence, a wall, protective fortress, whatever, will lose it. The one who loses his life, not in that way, of course, but in other ways, will make it live. So ogonese autein zoe is life. The gonois are the parents. Goneo has to do with begetting. So we'll beget it into life, we'll beget it as living. And that saying of Jesus about losing one's life um, is in the Gospels connected with the cross, the mystery of the cross. So, this short text, John Paul seems to think, expresses in a comprehensive way the whole of the order of love between man and woman.
So let's say you're walking around with somebody you're interested in and suddenly an erotic gesture emerges. I don't know, put the arm around your shoulder or hold your hand, whatever the case may be. Right on the spot in that situation, at that moment, you have to discern what's going on. Because you either squirm out from under the uh, unwelcome arm or snuggle into it or do something somewhat in between, more ambiguous, to keep the other person guessing. Um, how do you discern is the question. As in every other question in a final exam on theology of the body, Gaudium et Spes 24.3 provides the, provides the answer. Um, in this sense, you have to ask yourself, is the other person, am I, willing the good of the other? Do I will them for their own sake? Do I will the good really for them? And am I aware that I will find life, I will find myself only through a radical gift of self that's comparable to death. Those are like the, you know, I have glasses because I don't see very sharply, very clearly when, when I don't have them on. These two principles in Gandhi Mitzvah are like two glasses that allow us to see things clearly. They're like two handles on which one picks up a thing, particularly if it's heavy. Uh, if you can put both of your arms on it, it's much better. So as a way of seeing, these two are unbelievably useful. They're the two main questions to be asked. Then we can also worry about the context, namely the Trinity and the cross. Um, so for the question, this is what he calls the order of love. That's the intrinsic order of love. And he says about women that this order of love first takes root in women. And the claim is based 
in the first place on two biblical episodes, the creation of Eve, the man is alone, it's not good for the man to be alone, Eve, the woman, is created as a help to address this specific problem of being alone. She is the one who makes love possible, this order of love, and it's not in a purely incidental way that she happens to be the first one to come along so that the man is no longer alone, but there seems to be in her constitution something very specifically excellent, apt, for that, um, yeah, for introducing the order of love in the world. That's one episode. The other one is Mary and her yes to the angel in the name of the whole of the human race, where again it's through a woman that, in this case, the definitive order of love gets rooted in the world, in fact, in her womb, in that case. So that's what the rooting of the order of love refers to in the document. So we've talked about the order of love, God in 24.3, the rooting in which women have a particular, as he puts it, prophetic role to play. And there he follows the thinking of a German theologian of the 19th century, was born shortly after Newman, died some years before Newman, Matthias Josef Schäben, who in his Trinitarian theology asks, and I'll talk about this somewhat in the talk this afternoon, raises the question, well, if you look at the family, you could say, Jesus talked about his father as father and about himself as the son. But the three divine persons. How about the third divine person? Is there anything corresponding in the dynamics of the family to the third divine person? And his answer is yes, in a certain way. The woman 
who is the focal point of the love both of the man and of the children, So the, there's a lot to be said about that. The kinship between the Holy Spirit and being a woman. It's interesting, Hansus von Balthasar in his Theodramatics, in the first volume, An Analysis of Theater, compares in theater the author to God the Father, the main actor who realizes the author's project, compares him to the son, and the director to the Holy Spirit, whose role is essentially a pervasively mediating one, making sure that the words of the author get interpreted in the right way, allowing the actors to understand, see what Shakespeare wrote, helping them in detail, in the finest detail, to move in the right way. That's very much the role of a mother in the family. And there seems to be a particular excellence in human, in, in women's minds and hearts that enables them in a unique way to achieve being, as it were, the animating soul of the family. Men have a tendency to get absorbed in projects and forget everything else. I can, if I have a particular project, I can sit down and the whole world disappears. The only thing in existence is what I'm doing at the moment. Whereas my wife seems to be quite capable of doing her project well. She's smarter than I am, also academically, intellectually. But at the same time, she keeps track of many, many things besides. They're all present in her mind somehow, so she knows who is where and what's to be, and it comes natural to her. And I've seen this in many women. So, women in close similarity to the Holy Spirit, and therefore not automatically, but particularly with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, have this capacity for the order of love to take root, to become flesh and blood in detail, 
in the lives of the people around them. The way this is just elaborating what, uh, what's been said by both uh, keynote addresses so far. Um, so, anything you want to discuss would be just perfect. Sure. Um, before the fall yeah. in the garden, can we even conclude that Adam did have those lenses on with those two principles of Absolutely. Willing? Yeah. That's, uh, in fact, in John Paul's account of Genesis, the account is structured according to Gatiman's Best 24.3. If you remember, he has three original experiences that he talks about. The first is the experience of being alone, which he interprets in the first place as an experience that makes him aware of being a person. And that correlates very closely with the first of the two principles in Gaudium et Spes, that is, he realizes he is a person because he recognizes the animals, he can name them. He has self-dominion, God enters a covenant with him, with certain stipulations, don't eat from these trees, otherwise you're going to die. So there's a, the, it suggests a life's journey toward the good. The second experience, original unity with the woman, that clearly relates to the gift of self. Then the third, original nakedness without the need for shame, seems to relate, the way he explains it, to the completeness and purity with which those two principles of Gaudium's Base 24.3 were lived by the man and the woman. So in fact, his whole account of man and woman at the beginning is, is based on Gaudium's Base 24.3. Same thing, by the way, in his reading of the Song of Songs much later in the book. That's also structured that way. And at many other points in the book, he, it seems to become for him kind of a natural way of awareness when he thinks about anything. Oh, absolutely. So the um, closest analog to the position of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity is the position of Mary in the economy of salvation. And the parting of grace, the communication of grace, is usually associated with 
the Holy Spirit. God's love was poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Paul in Romans 5. So her role as intimately involved in this communication of God's life in detail, in a detailed way. Yeah, that's sort of the, the most intense case of what we are talking about. So, quite right, it fits perfectly into that picture of a particular kinship between femininity and the Holy Spirit. Although, just as one can't say that God the Father is male, so one can't say that the Holy Spirit is female, because um, those are together with male and female, which are inseparable from bodily differences, there come certain characteristics that seem to, as it were, descend from the divine persons. So that the account of the difference between man and woman can't limit itself to what happens here below, in terms of the family, but an important source for understanding differences is thinking about the persons of the Trinity. I was struck by what you said about how the woman coming to, as the help in man's solitude. Uh, it reminded me of in John's Gospel when Christ says, sending you the advocate. And right. As a feeling of aloneness. Like the, the, the apostles are fearing of Christ. I do not leave you orphans, he says, yeah. but will send the advocate, the parakletos. Para means by one side, kletos called, some are called to one side as a help in particular difficulties. working on translating and everything. What, what was one thing that really, one concept that really uh, j just maybe you had a hard time grasping it at first, but then you understood it and it really kind of changed your, your outlook on something? I don't know. What yeah. What impressed me most was, and, and that's a characteristic of real wisdom, is how, for him, the claim that God means verse 24.3, which expresses the order of love, summarizes the whole truth about man and woman. So his capacity to see it in various guises, in various places, to see how it shapes everything, 
that's, that's what struck me. Because wisdom has to do with not just seeing important first principles, but to see how they actually illumine things in detail. Not just in a very general way, but really in, in detail. Going on a walk with somebody that you're interested in, or maybe not interested in, but might be interested in you, and the sudden emergence of such a gesture between a man and a woman, that's detail. It's, it's full of contingent features, full of characteristics of the moment. For the light of God, it's best to really penetrate that in such a way that you, you can tell with your nose, as it were, what is going on, how does the thing smell, not just how does it look, but yeah, that sort of capacity in John Paul is what amazed me. Because it's the fruit of experience. Now, I asked myself, asked myself, he wasn't married. And he was faithful. So he probably never experienced sexual intercourse. But when he talks about it, in light of these first principles, it's with that wisdom that can only be experiential. You can't get it, and he explicitly says it at a certain page, theology of the body is not a knowledge you can simply gain from books. When I began as president of ATI in Austria, Cardinal Schönborn um, put in front of me a text as a guiding light, which I've come to appreciate increasingly since then. It's a text from the Summa of St. Thomas. Kershaman is a great admirer of St. Thomas. And you may know that St. Thomas coordinates, draws a parallel, already Augustine did that, between the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, the seven Beatitudes, and the seven great virtues, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, and then the four cardinal virtues. And it's very interesting that when he talks about love, 
he says that the gift of wisdom is what goes with love, which is very interesting. So he, he says there that wisdom implies a right judgment according to divine accounts. Rightness of judgment can happen in two ways. In one way, according to a complete use of reason. In another way, because of a certain kinship with the things about which one has to judge, such as about those things that bear on sexual purity. It's very interesting that he uses that example, and you'll see in a second why. Such as about the things that bear on sexual purity. Someone judges rightly by the inquiry of reason who has learnt moral knowledge but by a certain kinship to it itself, namely sexual purity, judges rightly about them the one who has the virtue of sexual purity and then who loves it. And then he goes on, in this way about divine things, to have about divine things, a right judgment from the inquiry of reason belongs to the wisdom that's an intellectual virtue. But to have a right judgment about them according to a kinship with them belongs to the wisdom that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. As Dionysius says, Dionysius Areopagita, that mysterious figure in the early church, nobody knows who he was, that a theologian is complete in divine things not only by learning but by suffering divine things. Fantastic statement. You have to suffer divine things, undergo them. Without undergoing them, your thinking is going to be thin. And this Huius modiatum compassio, he calls it, suffering with. So he must be thinking of Christ. Compassio, suffering with, or kinship with divine things, happens through love, which unites us to God, according to 1 Corinthians 6. The one who clings to God is one spirit with him. Right before that, Paul had talked about um, the one who goes to a prostitute is one body with her. So it is a somewhat spousal relation here. Wisdom acquired by a spousal relation with God. Yeah, that's the text he put before me. And John Paul seems to have that sense about um, love between man and woman, even though he was never married. 
but he had it, he had it as it were, from above, um, from his experience of the love of God. My wife and I, we had six children when we started studying the theology of the body. And we were astonished, so we thought of ourselves, well, we're an experienced couple. Um, but we were really astonished by how much John Paul was able to add to our experience, clarify our experience so that these things could take root in life. How the order of love takes root. That's the question we're thinking about. He's an excellent guide for that. He has the right pedagogy. There would be lots of things to think about in that context. For example, what he has to say about pornography, which is such a problem for so many men, where he suggests to men to contemplate the portrayal of naked women in great art of which he says that it has the exact opposite effect of pornography. That's, that's a highly unusual uh, proposal. Um, don't look at naked ladies, period. That's the uh, principle according to which usually this matter is thought about. And it's in a certain way a dangerous proposal but where it's deeply traditional is that you grow in love, in virtue in the degree to which you can really savor what is good see it uh, the medicine of negativity is necessary, you have to say no to yourself sometime, but if negativity is your only diet, morally speaking, in your moral self-education, you soon become a Puritan, which isn't so hard in America because we're so uh, deeply rooted in that. So there are many directions in which this can be applied. If, anything, if any direction interests you, um, or if you have other questions, it's totally free. I had a question. Uh, you were talking earlier about how to discern like, the practical situations with right. love and human love. So, for example, when the person puts their arm around you. And right. In that example. And also, when we were talking about like the Holy Spirit giving me the wisdom, like the akin to the divine persons. Right. It that that virtue of prudence is very much essential. Yes. That, that grace builds on nature. And so 
like this, would you say that prudence is necessary for like this kind of these principles of love to operate? Absolutely, and prudence has a lot of kinship with what we've been talking about. Um, because it's exactly having a sense for how general principles apply and work out in particular circumstances, which are often very obscure and difficult to, to penetrate. What prudence emphasizes in particular is recognizing how certain means are to be used. That seems to be what's specific to prudence. Whereas the gift of wisdom that St. Thomas talks about there is much more comprehensive. It takes in in a certain way, everything, the end, the means. Whereas prudence has the specific task of guiding you in the choice of means. It wouldn't be able to tell you does the other person really intend my good? Or are they playing with me? Am I to them like a bar of chocolate? <laughs> it's a comparison that occurred to me once. Um, to illustrate, as it were, from the other side, what the questions are in such a situation. Suppose I go to the store and I buy a bar of chocolate, Swiss. <laughs> in particular, Lindt. I have a particular affection for Lindt because uh, well, my mother is Swiss and every year we went to Switzerland for vacation and we passed right by the Swiss, the Lindt chocolate factory on Lake Zurich. And a fantastically beautiful spot. And their chocolate is good, too. <laughs> so I pick up a bar of Lindt chocolate at the store. And I say, good morning. Have you had a good night on your shelf? May I take you for a walk? So I pick up the piece of chocolate, the bar of chocolate, and I take her to the checkout counter, which is where the somewhat embarrassing part comes. <laughs> May I buy you? I ask the cashier, how much? Two fifty. Oh, I think I can afford that. So then I buy the chocolate. Of course, then I have to take off the wrapper because 
eating a chocolate with a wrapper is, is, uh, is no good. You get it between your teeth and so on. It's, it's <laughs> the immediate contact is what you seek with the, with the chocolate. But then it's over. Chocolate disappears down my, into my mouth, down my esophagus, into my stomach. And that's it, that's over. In, in that case, it's absurd. I mean, I, if this were a person, I would be committing several crimes at once. <laughs> Slavery, from the point of view of the slave lord, enslavement by buying, then some kind of abuse in the sense of a use of a person for my pleasure, and eventually murder. That's a, in a way a useful example to bring out the, the difference between, and, and what it is is an application, it's another application of these two principles of God and So does the other person really want my good? And are we aware of the serious question of a loss of life if this is just an episode? If the definitive gift of self that's, that's part of the very nature of marriage is not there? It becomes like a, I don't know, YouTube clip that flashes by on the screen, and as long as it lasts, it's pleasant, but then it's gone. No real life. Comes with it. Thank you, Dr. Bernstein. All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Different kind of pleasure than chocolate. <laughs> we'll not try to devour you. Yeah. Never necessarily experienced um, in the same way that other people did. So, what do you think it was? Was it his closeness? I mean, there's there's several uh, things he says in his writings. Like one time he talks about um, knowing about heaven in a way that seems as if he's not been there. But like he said something like, "You can know these mysteries only in a way that it, yeah, right." In the case of marriage, I'm convinced, and there's a lot of evidence for it of different kind, that his great teacher was St. John of the Cross, whose poetry is 
very much patterned after the Song of Songs. And then typical of St. John of the Cross's method is that he, after the poetry, he comments on it theologically. So that you have a combination between what poetry is, namely an incredibly compact, intense, dense representation, experiential in that way, and then a sharp theological recognition of... He ran into John of the Cross when he was 18 and learned Spanish on the spot to read him in the original. And then seven years later, he wrote his dissertation on him. And I'm convinced the theology of the body is in large measure making explicit the implicit theology of St. John of the Cross. And John of the Cross is the great master of Christian experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the real source of his theology of the body, the main source. Other authors play a role, but John of the Cross, the main role. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.